the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us today. James Blind is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice offering his office space. Thanks, Dan Rice. I appreciate it very much. Well, today on the program, we're going to hear a conversation that began yesterday with Michael Austin. He is the spokesperson with Christian History Institute, and they produce Christian History Magazine. They have an issue that they're highlighting that focuses on the role of the church and the early development of healthcare and hospitals as we know them today. It's rather fascinating to look back and see the impact the church has had, uh, not only in the season where it all began, but in the 21st century as well. So we'll uh, share with you the first part of that conversation and the second part of the conversation, which we didn't have time for yesterday. So that's coming up later this hour. Also, I want to give you an opportunity to um, make plans for this evening or perhaps the next and uh, view No Safe Spaces. It's the documentary, one of 2019's top earning political documentaries and the number one political documentary in its own right. Well, it's now available to watch at home. Critics call No Safe Spaces smart. They're calling it vital and urgent and one of the most important documentaries that you need to see. I would agree with that. Well, it tells a disturbing series of stories of how America is becoming a dangerous place to speak your mind and share your ideas, but does it in a way that's entertaining and powerful. Now, that's quite a challenge to pull all of that off. Now, it stars um, Dennis Prager, Adam Carolla, but also features luminaries from both the right and the left concerned about the erosion of our First Amendment rights. Now, if you wonder about the depth of political correctness on college campuses and beyond that eschews free speech, you're going to find no safe spaces, eye-opening, disturbing, but also informative and challenging. It's going to make you laugh and cry, but it's going to also make you think. So let me uh, encourage you to check it out, nosafespaces.com. It'll cost you $19.95, unless, of course, you're a KPDQ listener. And of course you are. And with the discount code SAVE25, you will save just that, 25% off. Again, nosavespaces.com, $19.95 for everybody else, but for you, the KPDQ listener, save 25 for a 25% discount. So there you have it. Let's begin by taking a look at some of the day's headlines. Well, you might recall that in 2018, in the weeks after Christine Blasey Ford publicly accused Brett Kavanaugh of sexually assaulting her at a party in high school, she was unable, unable rather, to produce any cooperating contemporaneous witnesses to demonstrate that she had mentioned the alleged assault to anyone or even that she'd ever met Kavanaugh. Well, in fact, Ford's friend Leland Kaiser would contradict her narrative, saying it just didn't make sense. And although Ford claimed Kaiser had attended the 1982 party during which the alleged assault occurred, Kaiser had no recollection of the event or anything similar and asserted that it was implausible that Ford could recall how she had gotten home or 
or rather couldn't recall, or where exactly the party had occurred. Kavanaugh himself forcefully denied the accusation. Well, nevertheless, Ford's accusations immediately reverberated throughout the nation's political landscape and dominated the coverage of every major media organization. Well, virtually all Democratic senators called for a serious inquiry or Kavanaugh's withdrawal from the consideration for the Supreme Court. Well, later, similar uncooperated accusations by Deborah Ramirez and Michael Avenatti's client, Julia Swetnick, only added fuel to those calls. Well, this week, week rather, more than a month after former aide Tara Reid alleged that Joe Biden sexually assaulted her when she worked for him, those same Democrats and media outlets are mostly silent. However, critics argue that Reid has presented substantially more corroborating evidence than Ford did. Well, Biden himself hasn't addressed the allegations against him, and no one in the media has asked him about it during interviews. Representatives for Biden's campaign have denied the allegations, but Biden has said nothing. In other developments, um, Gillibrand has now um, backed Biden despite having defended Kavanaugh's accuser and opposing Franken, uh, Franken, and Hillary Clinton has endorsed Biden as well. Byron York says the Dems set themselves up for Biden's furor by adopting Believe All Women mantra against Kavanaugh that may now come back to bite them. Well, in other news, as coronavirus cases in the U.S. topped one million on Tuesday, the president said it was because more patients rather, have been tested than other nations. The only reason the U.S. has reported one million cases of coronavirus is that our testing is so much better than any other country in the world, he tweeted on Tuesday evening. Other countries are way behind us in testing and therefore show far fewer cases. Well, the U.S. was the first nation in the world to reach the grim milestone as states across the, um, the country wrestle with how and when to safely reopen businesses with fears of economic disaster. Well, the landmark number of COVID-19 cases in the U.S. came just one day after global cases surpassed 3 million. Well, the mounting infections across the U.S. came as the coronavirus-related death tolls exceeded 57,000, according to a tally by Johns Hopkins University. Other coronavirus developments, a doctor is questioning the coronavirus death toll, claiming that influenza deaths have been called COVID-19. And um, one commentator is uh, ripping YouTube, as have others, for pulling problematic coronavirus video in which a doctor, a medical professional, has uh, challenged some of the coronavirus or COVID-19 status quo. Well, nearly 70 residents sickened with the coronavirus have died at a Massachusetts home for aging veterans. As state and federal officials try to figure out what went wrong in the deadliest known outbreak, at a long-term care facility in the U.S. And while the death toll at the state-run uh, Holyoke Soldiers Home continues to climb, federal officials are investigating whether residents were denied proper medical care and the state's top prosecutor is deciding whether to bring legal action. It's horrific, Edward Lampoint says, uh, whose father-in-law lives in the home and had a mild case of the virus. These guys never had a chance. York City Mayor de Blasio says the NYPD had to break up rabbis, a rabbi's funeral attended by hundreds. Uh, that story is continuing to develop, by the way. And the president has invoked the Defense Production Act to keep meat processing plants open with fears of supply shortages in our future. California, by the way, is facing civil rights lawsuit after Highway Patrol has banned rallies at the state capitol over coronavirus. And Pfizer says that coronavirus, the vaccine, could be ready by this fall for emergency use. Mitch McConnell is balking at infrastructure spending in the next coronavirus aid bill, and apparently there's going to be another one. And the coronavirus and in the IRS stimulus check error could be fixed with a hack, which you can now find online at the IRS website. 
Uh, Simon Property Group could reopen malls with strict coronavirus measures as well. Malls, plural, in various locations across the country. Well, Mitch McConnell says no further stimulus without litigation protection for businesses. Senator Mitch McConnell explains that's the only way we're going to ultimately begin to get past this. Colleges are among those dealing with massive legal liability should they reopen anytime soon. Another story says President Trump warned Democrats on Tuesday that he will demand adjustments for sanctuary cities as a condition of a a bailout aid for states as both parties take increasingly partisan paths toward the next round of emergency coronavirus funding or relief as uh, it is for many Americans. Ed Morrissey points out that going to work in the midst of a pandemic is essential for doctors, nurses, first responders, and even grocery store workers and delivery people. House Democrats don't think it's essential for a, a Congress in the middle of a national emergency and a $3 trillion spending spree. More on that later. And Oxford University has already um, had testing underway uh, for a vaccine. Oxford scientists believe vaccine could be here by September. And the world is slowly beginning to come back as countries uh, ease restrictions. The only difference between Georgia's heavily criticized reopening and Colorado's uneventful reopening is that in Colorado, the governor is a Democrat. From Hugh Hewitt, politicization of a pandemic was unthinkable to me long when I uh, when I read uh, John Barry's The Great Influenza. President Wilson and his team politicized 1918 outbreak as the Department of Defense, many cities and states. Uh, Disaster followed. Media was uh, complicit, censored. Now it's overkill the other way. Anyway, how this is being covered is having an impact nationwide. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll return in just a few moments. Again, we're winding our way through some of the news headlines. In the uh, later part of this hour, we'll talk with Michael Austin with Christian History Institute. An issue of Christian History Magazine focuses on how Christians began healthcare and hospitals as we know them at the very earliest days. That's coming up later this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be talking with Michael Austin, a conversation I began yesterday. We'll continue today. That's coming up in our next segment. We're still looking at some of the day's news. Major League Baseball looks to return in late June, playing in their home stadiums without fans and with a realigned league to cut long flights. Every team would still get 100-plus games, according to USA Today. And it looks like NASCAR will be back at the end of May. And the CDC, they say, with regard to your pets, keep your distance. Treat pets as you would other human family members. Do not let pets interact with people or animals outside the household. If a person inside the household becomes sick, isolate that person from everyone else, including Fido. And homicide police are investigating the death of a man who drank fish tank cleaner, not at all clear what that's about. Turns out there's much more to be suspicious about in that story. Vice President Pence's daughter has created a News for Kids resource. The Charlotte Pence Bond is even um, doing updates on COVID-19, just like her father. But for kids, you'll find that on YouTube. She explains her effort uh, earlier today on Fox News. This day in history, 1861, the Maryland House of Delegates votes 53 to 13 against seceding from the Union. 1861, in Montgomery, Alabama, Jefferson Davis asked the Confederate Congress for the authority to wage war. On this day in history, 1992, the jury in Simi Valley, California, acquits four Los Angeles police officers of almost all state charges 
and the videotape beating of Rodney King. The verdicts are followed by riots in Los Angeles that results in 55 deaths. And on this day in history, 2000, tens of thousands of angry Cuban-Americans march peacefully through Miami's Little Havana, protesting the raid in which armed federal agents forcefully removed six-year-old Alien Gonzalez from the home of his relatives, forcing him to return to Cuba. I want to let you know, if you uh, didn't catch the news already, that Christian News Northwest is going to be online again for the month of May. It's currently available. Uh, we're being told by John Fortmeyer, the publisher of Christian News Northwest. You can just click on the homes page for CNNW.com, Christian News Northwest. And until stay-at-home orders are lifted in Oregon and southwest Washington, they're making access to the normal fifth, and uh, that would give them access to their normal 1900 distribution sites for the newspaper. The plan is for Christian News Northwest to continue to be viewable online. Uh, they say, please know we are anxious to return to good old ink and newsprint as soon as possible. Your prayers to that end are appreciated. And the email was signed by John Fortmeyer, again, the publisher of Christian News Northwest. So I wanted to make sure that you were aware of the fact that you can still access the timely information, only this time online. Well, Pfizer says that the coronavirus vaccine could be ready by this fall for emergency use. To combat the coronavirus pandemic, they say that it could be um, ready for emergency use by the fall. Uh, Pfizer's CEO told the Wall Street Journal on Tuesday that the company could further be ready for a broader rollout by the end of the year. This is a crisis right now, and a solution is desperately needed by all. Well, the company is continuing to do more testing to ensure the vaccine is safe, according to the Wall Street Journal. The next results are expected as early as next month. And while many point to a vaccine as the surest path back to normal, public health experts see another way that's no less daunting. Millions more tests. 100,000 or more health workers to track and isolate those exposed to COVID-19 and a seamless data network to coordinate the effort. Some U.S. states are beginning the process of easing restrictions imposing, uh, rather imposed due to the coronavirus pandemic, but the various plans show that normal is a long way off. Among the states with aggressive plans to reopen business is Georgia, where officials on Tuesday report the death toll had dropped uh, had topped, rather, I wish it had dropped, but topped 1,000 people. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have uh, compiled um, draft guidelines to help businesses and organizations reopen, and they include businesses closing break rooms, restaurants having disposable menus and uh, plates, school children eating lunch in the classroom. There's a lot of questions about uh, antibody, uh, antibody testing for COVID-19, the pros and cons. There was an interesting piece on uh, KGW providing some understanding on the question, pointing out that as state and federal leaders are calling for more tests, we're seeing more talk of antibody testing as a faster alternative. Well, with COVID-19, the crisis, there's much talk about the importance of testing to see if you have the coronavirus and if you possibly have immunity to it. But what's the difference between testing COVID-19 and testing for its antibodies? Well, the question, is there any difference between tests for COVID-19 and the test to see if you have the antibodies to coronavirus? Well, the answer is yes, there is a difference. The COVID-19 test looks for active disease. The antibody test is an after-the-fact test that shows your body fought off the disease. Also, they're administered differently, so they're not the same test. They don't tell you the same thing. But what's been found is the PCR reaction uh, test, the most common for finding out if you have COVID-19 now, starts with a long swab reaching into the back of your nose or your throat. 
uh, where RNA particles of the coronavirus would collect. In the lab, the PCR test is positive if it finds the RNA of the virus. Also called a molecular or nucleic acid-based test, it can find COVID-19 before you feel any symptoms and before you form antibodies. That's one test. Well, the serological, uh, serologic antibody test uses blood to find out if you've had COVID-19, even if you've never felt sick. Well, this test looks for uh, markers of an immune response, the antibodies, which for most people show up in the blood about a week after they contact the virus or contract the virus. Rather, they detect the body's immune response to the infection caused by the virus rather than the virus itself, according to the Food and Drug Administration. Well, in other words, if you have a positive antibody test, it means that at some point you, the patient, has been exposed to the virus. Dr. Michael Borowitz, executive Deputy Director of Pathology at Johns Hopkins University and Laboratory Director there as well, has said. For a consumer, Dr. Borowitz said, the antibody test requires blood drawn from your arm, not taken from a finger prick, uh, are generally more reliable. The hope is that people who have the antibodies can resume normal life and return to their jobs, especially those in healthcare and emergency response and at nursing homes where staffers with immunity could reduce COVID-19 among frail residents. But some cautions um, about immunity. First, because COVID-19 is new, it's only an assumption that people with antibodies will have immunity. That's not yet known. The test doesn't tell you just because a patient has an antibody that he is necessarily immune to the disease. And that's what everybody wants to know. But that hasn't been proven. But if people do have immunity, the next question is, for how long? Also, be aware that the FDA has given emergency use authorization to only one home test for the diagnosed COVID-19, and as of the 22nd of this month, only four antibody tests for use by healthcare providers. Well, in fact, the FDA warns that some test developers falsely claim their serologic, uh, serological tests are FDA-approved or authorized, uh, but they are not. A test with the emergency authorization, a sort of preliminary approval, or a National Institute of Health evaluation supports greater confidence in test performance, it says. So if you are offered the test, make sure... It is the test that has been approved by the FDA. But this is a pretty slow rollout compared to the uh, the cost of sheltering in place. Well, one doctor is questioning the coronavirus death toll, claiming that influenza deaths have been counted along with the COVID-19. Dr. Scott Jensen, a Minnesota family physician and Republican state senator, uh, says on said on Tuesday that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidelines for doctors to certify whether a patient has died of coronavirus are a mess and predicted that some fatalities initially reported to be COVID-19 related would be reclassified. We both know, Jensen told the host of the program, that there have been influenza deaths, influenza cases that have been called COVID-19 deaths because nobody bothered to swab their throats. If you want to find out what the data is, I don't care if they're dead or alive, swab them. You can always run a test later and then actually get real information. Well, earlier this month, he told um, uh, a commentator that under the CDC guidelines, a patient who died after being hit by a bus and tested positive for coronavirus would be listed as having presumed to have died from the virus, regardless of whatever uh, damage was caused by the bus. He also gave a hypothetical example of a patient who died while suffering from influenza. If the patient was elderly and had symptoms like fever and cough a few days before passing away, the doctor explained, he would have listed respiratory arrest as a preliminary cause of death. There's been so much garbage going in that we are um, going to get garbage out, Jensen said on Tuesday, three weeks ago. Uh, he was speaking to Laura Ingram. 
You and I talked about this, and we've seen uh, since then in Pennsylvania, the coroners have pushed back and said there aren't COVID-19 deaths. Uh, these aren't COVID-19 deaths, and Pennsylvania reduced its numbers. So a lot going on, and of course, we're trying to learn as we go, and that's always a challenge in this process. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Michael Austin. He's the chief spokesman for Christian History Institute that publishes Christian History Magazine. The issue on healthcare and hospitals and the role that the Christian church played very early on will be the subject of a conversation we began yesterday and will reprise today and complete. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Glad to have you with us today. Well, as the coronavirus has raged across the globe and here at home, Christian History Magazine has an issue that explains how Christians founded healthcare and hospitals and the mission of the church. Well, the Christian History Institute, publisher of Christian History Magazine, offers healthcare and hospitals in the mission of the church. It's issue number 101, for your information, born out of the core belief that humans are made in the image of God and are worthy of health care administered by the institution known as the hospital. Well, these two ideas help to define the modern world where solutions are sought and care is provided in contrast to the pre-Christian era in which the sick were simply cast out and the dead left unattended. Well, here to talk with us about this uh, this issue, Michael Austin. He's a national spokesman for Christian History Institute and founder of Publish the Good News. Michael Austin, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you, uh, Georgine, and uh, thanks for that great introduction. You've done your homework. (laughs) Well, I love the Christian History magazine, for one thing. Well, Christian history has been largely removed from the American public education system that Christian leaders began in the early years of the nation. And so there's a a large, um, I, I suppose you could argue that there's broad ignorance about the role that Christianity played and the church played in the founding of the institutions that we now take for granted um, hospitals and healthcare. Talk a little bit about Christian History Magazine and this particular focus on um, the Christian's role and the theology behind the Christian's role in this area. Well, thanks for asking that question. Uh, it's an interesting story. And uh, you're quite right. The, um, the history of the faith is um, becoming dimmer and dimmer as uh, the days and years go by because the Bible has been removed from our education system. And um, actually, the founder of the magazine, Ken Curtis, who was a film documentarian, discovered in his work that uh, we Christians just don't know very much about the history of the faith. Um, So this was back in 1982 when he started the magazine. Uh, He was a producer, by the way, of a well-known film, The Cross and the Switchblade. Ah. That Yeah, that was a film that starred Pat Boone. It was a bit of a crossover film because in those days, this would be in the early 70s, there wasn't this balkanization of of Christian films. Uh, We can go to see Christian films, but usually it's uh, a limited uh, screening in some theater uh, for a week or or whatever. And um, back in in the 70s, this this film, because of Pat Boone and and others, uh, became... Uh, it got a very wide circulation. It was the story, a great story, of um, Wilkerson, um, uh, forgetting his first name, forgive me. I, I think it was uh, David Wilkerson. Yes, David um, Wilkerson. Yeah, a pastor from New Jersey that crossed the Hudson River 
and uh, ministered to the gangbangers of the 60s in New York City. Um, and uh, what, a, what an amazing story that is and was. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the Institute has now republished a, a premier edition of that film. Um, so uh, that, that film is a classic. Uh, but in any event, Ken Curtis was a film documentarian. Uh, his work was to uh, uh, document the history of the Christian faith, and he did a lot of biographies. In fact, he started a co- film company, very popular um, catalog of, of work that is um, popular among uh, churches, of course, uh, parachurch organizations, uh, schools, Christian schools. and um, In any event, having discovered that the Christians don't know much about the faith, he started this wonderful magazine. And uh, it was originally distributed, by the way, by another magazine, Christianity Today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but about eight years ago, nine, nine, I think we're going on probably nine or ten years ago, uh, that, um, uh, that publication took a turn in its mission, and the magazine came back to Christian History Institute, where it originally started, and Ken, at that time, was suffering from a terminal uh, cancer. And he made this issue, actually, uh, Christian History Magazine, issue 101, the first uh, issue published and distributed by the Institute when they recovered the magazine itself and, and started up their production of the magazine, and they developed a website so there's kind of a backstory, um, an interesting backstory here that Ken was going through a life-threatening experience that eventually took his life with cancer. And he, by the way, developed or produced a three-DVD series um, called Reflections, and it's his his own personal meditation on uh, Psalm 23 is one of them. The Lord's Prayer is an, another, and the and the Beatitudes, um, Christ's Beatitudes, um, biblical, uh, all three of them referring to biblical scripture, and Ken talking about um, his struggle with cancer, and they are just a wonderful, wonderful meditation on mm. the hope that we have as believers that we relate to this thing called death in a completely different way. And that, as you have mentioned in your introduction, is why the Christians even today are showing up differently in the, in the midst of this pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Well, the issue that we're referring to uh, features a collection of in-depth articles chronicling how, uh, from its early days, the church carried out active ministries of philanthropy, and care for the sick. This was unique in its time uh, in that because we had so little understanding of sickness and because of our own nature, people who were seriously ill were simply cast out. Uh, and the way the general population responded was was quite different. T- trace for us a little bit of that history and the role that Christians and the early church played in expressing that theological view that we are made in the image of God and therefore people uh, merited the kind of time and attention that we now expect uh, when it comes to health care. 
quite an amazing story. If we uh, dial back the calendar to, say, 200, <clears throat> here we are, Roman Empire, thriving. Uh, they've just wiped out um, uh, Israel. Um, they have decimated the Middle East. The entire known world, uh, basically the um, what is now the countries surrounding the Mediterranean, was thoroughly pagan. And in the Roman era of that time, illness and sickness was perceived uh, very differently than it is today. And that is that this was a sign of weakness. It was a sign of uh, the failure to please the gods that they worshipped. And so what they did basically with sick people, infirm uh, people with disabilities of all kinds, they rejected them. And when, some, when a family member got sick, it was not uncommon that they would be taken out and uh, put on the sidewalk uh, to die. And so what could be seen, and we know this from Roman history, accounts of history at the time, uh, not only Josephus, who, of course, chronicled uh, the Christians um, in, the popul- in that population and, and what they were doing, but other Roman historians um, documented this, um, this very pathetic era in which, uh, as I say, the, the sick and the infirm were, were neglected and cast out. Now, what were the Christians doing? What was their response? Well, they were concerned about them for the very reason that you mentioned, that our faith, we learn and imbibe the truth that our Creator created us in His own image. And therefore, the Christians were concerned about the human body. Uh, They were beginning to understand and live the truth that it is our body today that is the temple uh, in which the Holy Spirit resides for the believer. Um, and that is um, an undeniable truth that, ex- that uh, Christians experience on a day-by-day basis. And so we are interested in this body and uh, taking care of this body. In fact, the Old Testament, of course, is well known for its teaching of what we know today as hygiene, the difference between the clean and the unclean. There is an awareness given by our Heavenly Father that there are things to avoid and that there are things to uh, enjoy and exalt in. Um, And so uh, it's ironic, not not really ironic, but I think it's uh, it's worth to see that in in this era, 2020, where we have when we have the most advanced kind of technology, medical technology. Um, healthcare technology that people are actually being cared for in hospitals quite like they were being cared for in 200 when there was a pandemic Uh, and and it lasted for 15 years and it wiped out a third of the population of Europe devastating Uh, we can't even imagine that Mm. but uh, you you know what that that thought uh, we need to take yeah. a quick break, so hold that thought. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Michael Austin uh, with Christian History Institute. We're talking about an issue of Christian History Magazine that reflects the history of the church when it comes to health care and hospitals. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. <laughs> 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing a conversation I began with Michael Austin with the Christian History Institute. Uh, Christian History Magazine is uh, published. In fact, it was originally published some years ago, but is made available today. In fact, you can find the whole thing online. Um, that deals with how the church uh, responded to the need for health care and hospitals. And uh, just before the break, um, uh, my guest, Michael Austin, was talking about uh, a pandemic that wiped out a significant portion of the population um, in Rome and uh, how, it, I think you said it lasted 15 years, Michael? It did. It did. It was referred to as the Cyprian uh, pandemic. And um, it, uh, I I mentioned that it wiped out a third of the population mm. of Europe. Uh, if we were to think about a third of the population of America dying from this pandemic, we would be talking about 100 million people. Uh, there's about 300 million in, it, in, this, uh, in this nation. Am I correct? Yes. <laughs> so here we That's are amazing. with, yeah, yeah, would, we can't even imagine uh, what that would be, but that's that's what took place. Now, of course, it was over a period of 15 years. But uh, the thing that uh, that I find so fascinating is that you know there is no cure for this uh, COVID-19. We know that. Um, so, what are people doing? They're being cared for in hospitals. If if you are in the condition that calls for being in the hospital, uh, frankly, uh, all that can be done is, uh, you know, critical separation, not just social distancing. Uh, That's an interesting term that uh, has been known throughout uh, the history of man, that when we get sick, we social distance, you know, we quarantine ourselves. Uh, We go home, we get plenty of rest, we drink lots of fluids. Uh, We know this intuitively. This is taught, actually, we don't know it so intuitively, but it's been taught to us by the Bible. Uh, it instructs us in, in good hygiene and health care. But, um, yeah, they, the, uh, the care that people are receiving today is very much like what these, these uh, locations, what these uh, institutions were that became hospitals as early as the 200s. What did they do? They gave, uh, they gave the, the person a, a good hot bath. They uh, gave them a change of clothes. They fed them a good meal, they um, brushed their teeth, and they gave them a good night's rest. And not only that, but one of their primary interests was that they would come to an awareness of their Creator, that they would face what it meant to die, that they had the opportunity and were offered the opportunity to confess their sin, to repent of their sin, to get right with God, and prepare themselves to die. Not only that, but they provided them with burial services. Now, this was very unusual in that day, because in the 200s in Roman Empire, um, the body was basically left to rot in, on the street or cast in the field, and the wild beast would, would consume it. They did not even give people of what we know of and, and think of as a proper burial. So all of these, uh, some 2,000 uh, years later, the Christians are still doing the same thing in hospitals, 
um, they are offering these profound experiences. First of all, taking care of the body. You know, our creator created this body to heal itself. That's mm-hmm. primary. Every physician will tell you that the, they, that they are aware of that. And what they try to do is they try to facilitate as best they can. And, of course, we have come up with uh, pharmacia. We've come up with all of these uh, technologies. And, but, you know, even the pharmacy is getting their remedies from the natural right. world that we live in. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, it's incredible. Incredible. Well, the issue of Christian History Magazine that we're talking about contains 14 features and shorter sidebar articles, a chronology timeline, an archive of rare artwork and photos, um, a letter to the editor section, extensive reading lists compiled by the Christian History editorial staff, and much more um, to learn from our our forebears. I, I noted uh, George Barna, um, speaking of data gathering in a recent survey, said that young people couldn't think of anything positive that the Christian church stood for. Why is it important for us in the 21st century from the standpoint of a pandemic looking both back and forward that we understand the significant role that the Christian faith has played in the uh, the systems that we now rely on? Um, and I'm thinking primarily of young people who may have no um, understanding of that history at all. Why is it important? Well, yes, we need to teach our youth the history of the faith and the history of the church. Um, I mean, I'm a, a great advocate of uh, bringing the Bible back into education. In fact, there is a movement uh, uh, at foot to, um, for the church to reclaim their original responsibility and re- original mandate to educate um, the institution of education came out of the monastery movement in Europe during the Reformation. Prior to that, there was no real institution of education. There were, there were learning guilds, and there were uh, uh, people were teaching uh, young people to learn a trade or a craft. And of course, the agricultural industry at the time, uh, young people grew up in a, in a farm family, or they were a part of a, uh, a large community that uh, tended the fields, raised the crops, uh, produced the food uh, for the local community. Um, but when the Reformation came about, and Christians began reading their Bible for themselves, um, a explosion of, of um, revelation took place. And one of, those, uh, one of the outcomes of that was the, uh, the idea of teaching, of learning, of, of uh, developing knowledge, and of, of the school, uh, the monastery that Martin Luther lived in became the uh, a university and so uh, the church there's a movement today to encourage the church to reclaim what it did historically mm-hmm. which was it was the entity responsible to uh, develop education and to educate people in their uh, professions uh, in uh, theology 
you know, our major universities, including Harvard, Yale, Princeton, right. all of the uh, uh, Ivy League, they, they were developed, they were, they were instituted to teach young people to learn the Bible so That's that they right. could teach the Bible. Yeah. And fact, today, the Bible's been thrown out. It's so fascinating to learn the origins of some of these institutions that are so um, uh, appreciated today and, and find out that, that the core, the beginning of those institutions came from a desire to propagate the faith and to um, help people develop their faith in Christ. Now, this particular issue and Christian History Magazine in general, how can our listeners access that and what's the best way for them to, and in fact, I put a link on the, my Facebook page for this issue, but what's the best way for them to, to follow up? Well, the website is christianhistorymagazine.org, and uh, it's freely available. In fact, all of the issues, and by the way, this, was, this is issue 101, uh, healthcare and hospitals. The, uh, they're up now to 133. So all of those, by the way, it's a quarterly um, publication. Uh, you can uh, receive the hard copy magazine in the mail. By the way, you cannot pay for a subscription of this magazine. It's offered only by donation. And by the way, um, the, the founders of, of the magazine and also the donors and those who support the ministry are eager for people if there's a financial issue, issue in the family or for an individual. There's plenty of opportunities to donate for this uh, subscription that you might apply for uh, on the website, but you can ignore those opportunities and go right through and um, get a year subscription to the magazine at no cost. So... Um, and as a, as a matter of fact, all of the resources that uh, Ken Curtis's company, Vision Video, created for distribution throughout the, uh, the, the Christian field uh, have been recently donated to Christian History Institute and are being made uh, available free of charge. And isn't it wonderful that this has actually happened right at this time when people are at home... <laughs> Um, and and they can access all of this material on the website, christianhistorymagazine.org. Looking for great resources, study resources for home, homeschoolers, church libraries, middle high schoolers, colleges and universities, just a great resource. And I hope people will uh, take advantage of the opportunity to go to the website and um, begin to learn some of the history that I think we can be very uh, proud of, if that's an appropriate way to put it, and may inspire us to do great things moving forward as well. Uh, Michael Austin, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for taking the time to share that with us here today. Well, thank you, and thank you for your interest in Christian history. Thank God you bless so you. Much. God bless you as well. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll take a look at some of the latest from the CDC and other information on COVID-19 and how we are faring as a nation. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton engineering. Dan Rice, well, he's given up his office. Thanks, Dan. By the way, we're going to be celebrating our 38th wedding anniversary. Not this, but next Friday. Just saying. Hey, got an, uh, an update for the state of Oregon and some information on the state of Washington. This is an update for the 29th. Uh, according to health officials, they detail the most common symptoms of coronavirus patients and the death toll and the incidence of 
uh, contraction of the virus. Oregon now has a total of 99 deaths, 2,385 cases, and the vast majority of those tested for COVID-19 have tested negative. In Washington, there have been to date 786 deaths, 13,842 cases, and again, among the tests, the majority um, came back negative. In the United States, all across the country, 58,368 deaths, um, and worldwide, 218,563 known deaths uh, from COVID-19. Well, more Oregonians died the past month than is typical in mid-March and early April, according to data released by state health officials, but fewer than half the excess deaths were officially connected to coronavirus. It's unclear if other fallout from the pandemic, including a fear of seeking health care, played a role in the other 167 deaths. An official said the data is preliminary. In its weekly report, the Oregon Health Authority listed the most common symptoms reported by people who have uh, tested positive for COVID-19. The most common symptoms were cough, fever, and muscle aches. So make note of that. And Oregon State's, Oregon's state park system will likely remain closed through much of May. Officials keep parks uh, closed to help stop the spread of the coronavirus and people uh, flocking to those locations who are stir crazy. Oregon Governor Kate, uh, Kate Brown wants to see uh, counties detailed testing reports, including approval from public health leaders before reopening areas of the state. And the city of Portland will close 100 miles of streets to car traffic in an effort to create more space for people to walk bike or run during the coronavirus pandemic while maintaining proper social distancing. It's an interesting approach. I'll leave it at that. A long-term care facility in Vancouver has seen 26 confirmed coronavirus cases in the past month, including seven deaths, according to health officials. Some updated information on the state of Oregon. And Oregon is reporting uh, since the shutdown, the suicide and crime rates have gone up by 20%. The shutdown is having a terrible cost of increasing suicide calls, domestic violence, and business break-ins. This is a call to action for those of us who are followers of Christ to be prayerful and to reach out to those uh, with whom we have some connection during this season. Portland police are reporting 22 to 29 percent increase in domestic violence. A Portland Area Domestic Violence Prevention Service, a call to safety, reported receiving over 100 calls in one day, which was nearly double their normal call volume. And they are also witnessing, according to Portland police, a large increase in shootings and business break-ins, according to COIN TV. Uh, The total number of business break-ins increased by more than 60% generally in Portland uh, during the March shutdown. These small businesses are already suffering from a loss of customers and employees, added destruction and theft to those vulnerable small businesses at the worst possible time, maybe the final blow that pushes even more to bankruptcy which creates more layoffs, more misery, more domestic violence, more poverty, and more suicide calls. Well, the most tragic and heartbreaking factor is the rise in suicide attempts in the state of Oregon. The number of suicide calls into Portland's Area 911 rose over 20% during the shutdown in March, according to the Oregonian. Human lives in misery are now at both uh, sides of the scale of the terrible pandemic. We need to do everything humanly possible to reduce the health threat and the suicide crime threat at the same time. This is why the Taxpayer Association of Oregon is distributing hundreds of masks rather and hand sanitizers statewide, while also pushing hard for reopening plans, which they have um, issued as a suggestion for the governor. Seven points to reopen Oregon. Again, 
by the Taxpayer Association of Oregon. They uh, write that we offer these ideas for the approval of state officials and state health officials as a safe, sound, and strategic way to reopen Oregon, to save parts of our state from economic collapse, and to stem a long-term Great Depression. Number one, they suggest regional reopening. Businesses in low-risk areas should be allowed to reopen, as there are five Oregon counties with no cases at all and a few more with only one case. State Senator Lynn Findley and Representative Mark Owens have proposed a pilot program for the currently virus-free county of Harney uh, in Oregon. Number two, occupational reopening. Not all occupant, occupations rather carry the same risks. Safer occupations should be allowed to reopen. Number three, no contact reopening. Many owners are already changing their business to reduce any contact with customers. Some are changing their point of purchase into a contact-free experience for both the customer and the employee. Number four, safe and slow reopening. Uh, This would allow businesses to increase customer capacity in stages. For instance, a restaurant with 100-person capacity could start seating two families in addition to takeout. This would allow businesses to navigate health changes, new rules, inventory control, and employee retraining at a speed that best suits them. Number five, healthcare reopening. Closing off healthcare services is actively harming the efforts to help fight the coronavirus and, for that matter, other illnesses that need attention. For instance, medical reporter Dr. Mark Siegel spoke this week on how people cannot get antibody tests to prove their post-virus status because testing labs have been scaled down to near zero because doctors have canceled all tests, routine blood tests, cholesterol, etc., not related to the virus or life-threatening, which Um, uh, has left testing labs understaffed. Number six, and again, there are seven, uh, reduced uh, regulation and taxes. If not all businesses are going to be allowed to open soon, then we need to have a plan for those businesses who are left out. Oregon needs to follow the president's uh, administration's example of reducing regulations and suspending more rules to help businesses better bounce back from the economic crisis. Remember, this is a worldwide recession threat where businesses are being hit on all sides. After Oregon passes several of the largest taxes in Oregon history in the past three years, and they also pass some of the most restrictive regulations in the nation, there needs to be some relief or they will not survive to pass those taxes, which is the worst case scenario. Now, this is going to be a challenge in the Democrat-led Oregon legislature if it's even taken seriously. And finally, number seven, a forum for citizen participation. Oregonians want to participate in their own recovery. Right now, it feels like uh, that they that we are hearing, um, all that we are hearing, rather, is that all the things we cannot do or should not do and that all the future decisions will be made by others. Without openly and actively soliciting the public, many of Oregon's best ideas will remain never mentioned. The state should create a central clearinghouse of ideas and solutions that are unique to Oregon. Right now, citizens do not know who to talk to with their suggestions or if anyone cares about their ideas. If you have any idea, please email us, referring to the Taxpayer Association. Furthermore, when it comes to our state leaders, the president has called for a bipartisan council on the reopening, and therefore the governor should call uh, the, the same. State Representative Z- uh, Jack Zika has called for the state's top religious leaders to be included in Oregon's virus response, which represents a powerful force and voice of charity in the state. Again, uh, you can find this at OregonWatchdog.com, a great source for local news, but also the seven-point plan to reopen Oregon that's been offered by the Taxpayer Association of Oregon. Well, one of the side effects of the pandemic here in the state of Oregon, pipes clogged with non-flushable junk. Now, one of Oregon's most populous counties is seeing a significant increase in non-flushable items clogging pipes during the pandemic. 
which can severely damage the sewage system and create wastewater overflows and worse. Well, since the 17th of March, Washington County Clean Water Services has seen more non-flushable items like cleaning wipes, facial tissues, napkins, mop refills, rags, feminine hygiene products, clogging pipes, and pump stations. What used to be a once-a-year cleanup to unclog pipes now has been happening on a weekly basis. Clean Water Services' Karen DeBaker says that clogging pipes have always been a problem, but right now it is in overdrive. With the unprecedented event of COVID-19, we're seeing an increase in what we call non-woven products, and these products do not break down. Now, again, on that list, we're seeing cleaning wipes. That's like uh, the wipes you might use uh, for your countertops. Facial tissue, that does not belong in the toilet. Napkins that you would use for a meal. Mop refills. Uh, rags and feminine hygiene products clog the pipes, and that's causing a problem. Well, there are 39 pump stations spread throughout the county. This is Washington, and Washington County, rather. And at least five stations are now requiring more work to unclog the pipes. This could cause a public health problem as wastewater can overflow back up into homes and storm drains. So take note, one of the side effects could be avoided. We don't have to live through that particular challenge. Pipes clogged with non-flushable junk. I hope we haven't completely lost our minds, but sometimes I wonder. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just uh, taking a look at what's going on in the world around us. Since we're sheltering in place and can't really wander around in the world, we'll just take a stroll through some of the events that are taking place. Uh, two representatives, uh, Representative Young and Representative Walsh, both Republicans in Gig Harder, Harbor, rather, have issued a joint plan to jumpstart Washington's economy. Uh, the two representatives have released their plan to help kickstart Washington's economy when the state does finally reopen for business. Young and Walsh, the representatives, are calling for um, calling their plan the Boise Solution, short-term statewide dual moratorium on uh, B&O taxes. I'm not sure what that is in Washington, and impact statements on everything. So that's what Boise stands for, um, a short-term statewide dual moratorium on B&O taxes and impact statements on everything. And if you take the first initial of several of those words, you get Boise, including permits and fees. As we approach May, they write, um, the broader dialogue continues to center around when to reopen economy, said Young. I believe it's critical to take hold, to, to take bold action now to get it flourishing again. Well, the Boise plan is a, a two-pronged approach that seeks to allow shuttered businesses the opportunity to quickly earn back much-needed lost revenue and increase their short-term margins while streamlining their ability to get back up to speed by removing the need to wait for governmental reviews and permitting to begin their work. Again, we're talking about a plan by two representatives in the state of Washington. This plan will kickstart our local economic engine across all sectors of our state and impact working families and businesses immediately without adding more government bureaucracy, says uh, Representative uh, Walsh, Jim Walsh from Aberdeen. Well, due to the fact the state is already losing revenue because of the shutdown, the major tenants of the plan include revenue leveraging the B&O tax accounts are roughly 18 percent of the state's revenue, while sales and use tax account for about 50 percent. The Boise plan would apply a short term leverage on the 18 percent to help the 50 percent rebound and excel 
at a much faster rate. The net result is greater economic activity and state revenue growth, they write. Number two, capital liquidity. Due to the limits on governmental lending and its inability to cover all small business capital needs, the Boise plan would pause B&O taxes to increase small business profit margins with a secondary goal of improving capital liquidity due to lowering the risk of restart up failure and increasing the ability of the banking industry to lend additional capital. The plan would also temporarily suspend governmental impact fees, which would improve profit by reducing regulatory costs due to higher speed business restart activities. And finally, the third tenet of their plan, streamlining economic activity. Boise, the name of their plan, also seeks to address the concern of businesses that are reopened but forced to wait on regulatory permission before startup. With saving depleted, local small business cannot afford to wait on permitting once they do reopen. The Boise plan would suspend fees, permitting and impact statement assessments to address those concerns. In in situations involving long-term public safety issues, permitting and reviews could be done after the fact, but in either case, the fees associated with all would be eliminated until the economy is back up and running. Representative Young says this plan will position our state economy, and again, we're talking about the state of Washington, will uh, position our state economy well from a competitive standpoint, especially from foreign and out-of-state competition, increase capital liquidity, and ultimately help regenerate our overall state revenue. We're confident we can overcome COVID-19 and its damaging economic effects, and we can offer real help to everyone who needs it. Representative Walsh says, as your state lawmakers, again, the state of Washington, we will continue to do everything in our power to find the right solutions to get Washington back on its feet and Washingtonians safely back to work. Let's start by unleashing our local economy with Boise. Again, the Boise bill is currently being prepped and finalized should there be a special session of the legislature, which has not yet been officially called. So efforts in both the states of Oregon and Washington to figure out uh, what has never been done before in not only either Oregon or Washington, but anywhere across the country under these set of circumstances. We're now learning about um, a new expression of COVID-19. Apparently, three children are the first in the U.S. to develop a rare life-threatening inflammatory syndrome linked to coronavirus that raised concerns in Europe. As experts are warning, the virus may have second dangerous phase in kids. So take note, three children here have been identified with a rare inflammatory syndrome that's being investigated for a potential link to coronavirus. One is critically ill, one is in intensive care, and the third has been discharged. Well, the mysterious condition is understood to result in high fevers and swollen arteries similar to toxic shock syndrome. It's said to be similar to Kawasaki disease, an illness that can also cause severe swelling of the arteries. The three children here in the U.S. range in age from six months to eight uh, eight years. Doctors in the U.K. and Italy and Spain previously raised concerns when they've had cases there and their respective countries. They fear a possible link between the coronavirus pandemic and clusters of severe inflammatory disease among infants. And as I mentioned, we have three cases, three known cases here in the U.S., and they're trying to determine if there is a link to COVID-19. Now, it comes as an expert warns that children may experience two phases of COVID-19, the initial infection and a secondary immune response that kicks in some weeks later, some weeks later. Uh, it comes uh, as an expert warns that uh, these phases can have a serious consequence in younger children. Inflammatory syndrome, uh, children are being admitted with what they're calling multi-symptom inflammatory state, referring to the overproduction 
of um, cytokines, cytokines, one or the other, um, the overreaction of the body's immune system in a storm, which is what they're calling the overproduction, uh, the proteins start to attack healthy tissue, which can cause blood vessels to leak and lead to low blood pressure. Doctors say this also happens with Ebola, causing the body to go into shock. It's also been noted in older COVID-19 patients, but the concern now is uh, that a, a secondary infection or a secondary response to a result of COVID-19 in smaller children could also be uh, an issue. Well, 50% of Americans say that they or someone in their household lost their job or lost hours due to the coronavirus pandemic's impact on the economy. That's according to a new national Marist poll for NPR and the PBS NewsHour released it Wednesday. Now, the poll's release came as the government uh, reports that the U.S. economy plunged at an annual rate of 4.8 percent for the first time for the first three months rather of this year, the largest contraction since the Great Recession over a decade ago. Still, U.S. equity markets soared on Wednesday with upbeat news about a potential coronavirus treatment from drug maker Gilead Sciences. And of course, Pfizer saying that they may have a uh, vaccine within um, the next several months, not until the fall. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in an interview on Wednesday said the U.S. and other countries must join together and hold the Communist Party of China accountable for its deception in the coronavirus outbreak to prevent further pandemics from happening. Echoing similar thoughts from Dr. Anthony Fauci, a group of Chinese scientists said they believe the novel coronavirus is likely to return seasonally, just like the flu, according to a new report. In Massachusetts, the coronavirus has killed at least 80 veterans at the Holyoke Soldiers' Home in what's being described as the deadliest known outbreak at a long-term care facility in the U.S. An additional 82 veterans and 81 employees have tested positive for the virus, and federal officials are trying to determine whether residents were denied proper medical care. New York Mayor um, Bill de Blasio doubled down on Wednesday on his criticism of those involved in a large gathering at a Jewish funeral in Brooklyn, but also apologized for his overnight warning to the Jewish community as a whole that threatened future arrests. This was apparently a popular rabbi who has uh, passed away. And Germany, one of the first European countries to cautiously loosen its coronavirus lockdown, is now facing the bleak prospect of having to restore the measures following a, a, a slight uptick in new infections, something that um, we're trying to avoid as things are loosening up here. Starbucks says 90 percent of its stores uh, in the U.S. are expected to reopen by early June, albeit with modified service. And dozens of retailers and farmers, including Costco, Trader Joe's, Walmart and Kroger, have been named in a class action lawsuit that alleged they engaged in price gouging by marking up the price of eggs sold in California. And concerns uh, that SARS-CoV-2 can be spread throughout the air have increased after researchers in Wuhan, China, discovered the genetic material of the coronavirus in airborne droplets in two hospitals, according to a new study. And with the coronavirus pandemic, mourning the death of loved ones has been disorienting and lonesome because of social distancing orders that keep family and friends separated. And a Tyson food processing plant in Kentucky is the latest company's facility to close following a reported outbreak of coronavirus among its workers. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Mitch McConnell says senators are going to return to work on Monday. Many brave Americans are working 
and we can too, he says. If essential employees and healthcare workers on the front lines of the battle against coronavirus are working, then the Senate will too. Again, a quote from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell on Wednesday. Appearing on the Brian Kilmeade show with host Brian Kilmeade, McConnell said that the Senate would return to work on Monday while the House of Representatives will not. We, uh, we feel like if people on the front lines are willing to, uh, to do their jobs, we should do ours as well. We'll practice proper safeguards in the wake of this and work safely in the Senate, but get back to business. We're not going to sit on the sidelines during this period. Uh, and he went on to say, we're willing to discuss with the House, even if they're not around, we're willing to discuss the way forward, as I've already outlined, provided we have protections from the brave people who have been on the front lines. So um, how surprised and, dare I say, disappointed are you that the House is going home? Kilmeade asked in the interview. I mean, the uh, for you guys, you're not any more in uh, danger than uh, they are safe. That choice doesn't uh, may hurt the country. I'm trying to quote him, but I'm not doing a very good job. Well, McConnell responded, yes. Look, here's what we're going to do, Brian. Uh, we're going to modify routines in ways that we are smart and safe. But we're going to honor our constitutional duty to the American people and conduct critical business. And we're going to do it in person. If it's essential for doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, truck drivers, grocery store workers, and many other brave Americans to keep carefully manning their own duty stations, then my view and the view of many of my colleagues is that it is essential for us, us senators, to carefully man our uh, ours and support uh, those folks uh, who are out there on the front lines. McConnell said he believes senators can practice social distancing and wear masks when it is appropriate. We believe we can conduct the people's business and we intend to, uh, Mitch McConnell says. Well, half of Americans in a new poll say that they have been affected financially by the coronavirus pandemic, which has paralyzed the U.S. economy and pushed millions onto the unemployment rolls. An NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll released on Wednesday revealed that 50 percent of Americans say they or someone in their household has either lost a job or had their hours reduced as a result of the virus outbreak. That's up from 18 percent just a month ago. The economic toll and is even harsher on people of color, those without a college degree, younger people and individuals who make less money, the poll found. Among non-whites, 60 percent of respondents say that they or someone in their household has lost a job or hours compared with 43% among whites. About 55% of individuals who earn less than $55,000 said that they or someone in their household had lost work, compared to 47% of those who earn more than 55%. Well, in the five weeks since a majority of states issued strict stay-at-home orders, five weeks, it's only been five weeks, they've directed non-essential businesses to close. More than 26 million workers have applied for the first time unemployment benefits, erasing the entirety of the 22.78 million labor market gains since the Great Recession. With a labor force that totals 162 million people, the claims figures suggest the unemployment rate is about 16 percent, or roughly one in six Americans, which is significantly higher than the 10 percent peak during the 2008 financial crisis. The previous one-week high for jobless claims was 695,800 Back in 1982, well, Republican senators are ramping up uh, warnings that the recent boost in jobless benefits amid the coronavirus crisis will push unemployment higher, as many individuals are able to collect more money through the program than they made while on the job. Well, under the Phase Three Economic Stimulus Package passed last month, also known as the CARES Act, Congress provided $250 billion to extend unemployment insurance to more workers and lengthen the duration to 39 weeks 
up from the normal 26. The provision allowed for an additional $600 to be provided a week for four months uh, to those losing their jobs amid the crisis. But Senator Ben Sass blasted the policy and warned that any attempt to extend those benefits in a potential phase four package could backfire and harm American business. Small business will struggle as long as unemployment pays more than work. Senator Ben Sass says the real world doesn't uh, look anything like their progressive talking points, but that's not going to stop um, Sanders and Pelosi from doubling down on sloppy policy, end quote. Already, the Wall Street Journal reports that about half of U.S. workers can earn more with their jobless benefits than they did while working, a factor that could hurt efforts by some businesses to reopen. I guess it's a matter of uh, principle and a matter of character, which you decide to do. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi this week floated the possibility of a guaranteed minimum income as part of a potential phase four response to the coronavirus crisis, an idea being pushed by um, members of the Democratic Party like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Bernie Sanders. Let's see what works, what is operational and what needs other attention. Others have suggested a minimum income, a guaranteed income for people. Is that worthy of our attention now? Perhaps so, she said. She was speaking on MSNBC on Monday. Her remarks come with a discussion about the next phase, the next stage of the stimulus package, which the speaker has termed CARES 2 to boost the economy and provide relief to businesses and families. Democrats have already said the package should include at least $500 billion in aid to state and local governments. A minimum guarantee income is an idea that was popularized by former 2020 hopeful Andrew Yang. Calls for it have increased amid the economic downturn connected to the pandemic, with left-wing lawmakers calling to make the uh, one-off stimulus payment, $1,200 per adult, $500 per child, bigger, and a monthly feature. Ocasio-Cortez has called for $2,000 in monthly payments to all families, regardless of immigration status, and $1,000 per child. She has uh, been joined by progressive uh, caucus leaders and fellow Democrat Representative Pamela Jayapal in Washington, Mark Pokin of Wisconsin, and squad members, uh, Representatives Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts, Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, and activists in um, the demanding and even costlier version of the economic stimulus. Standard, uh, rather Sanders, who uh, until recently was running for the 2020 Democratic uh, presidential nod, also pushed bigger and more regular stimulus checks until the crisis passes. And um, true to form, they're not allowing this crisis to go to waste, try to reshape uh, the U.S. Last year, it took just a day for Joe Biden to release an in-person video directly addressing accusations of inappropriate contact with multiple women. Now, more than a month after his former staffer, Tara Reid, publicly accused him of sexual assault in a podcast on the 25th of March, he himself remains silent. And even though he's conducted numerous interviews, no one in the media has asked him about the matter either. Well, his public silence has continued even after Larry King live clip from 1993 is resurfaced. This uh, this weekend, it appeared to feature the mother of Tara Reid, alluding to problems her daughter faced while working as a staffer for the then U.S. senator from Delaware. And on Monday, Business Insider reported more independent, contemporaneous support for Reid's claim from a former neighbor. That cooperation followed the Intercept's reporting that Reed's brother and friend had also backed her allegations, saying they had heard about her claim at the time. Still, the only responses from Biden have come through his campaign. Asked by Fox News about the Larry King clip, the campaign referred them to a statement earlier this month from Biden's deputy campaign manager, Kate Bedingfield, that said 
What is clear about this claim? It is untrue. That's absolutely did not happen. Well, Vice President Biden has dedicated his public life to changing the culture and the laws around violence against women. He went on to say he authored and fought for the passage and authorization of the Landmark Violence Against Women Act. He firmly believes that women have a right to be heard and heard respectfully, except in this case, it would appear. Such claims should also be diligently reviewed by an independent press, end quote. Well, in March, Bedingfield, the campaign a spokesperson said that women have a right to tell their story and reporters have the obligation to rigorously vet those claims. We encourage them to do so because these accusations are false. Women should be believed, Joe Biden said in January of 2018. Well, his silence is marking a, a, a marked contrast, rather, to his uh, more direct handling of previous misconduct claims against him. And the complicit response by the media is now being held up as a classic example of a double standard. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, says that people are outraged over the Kavanaugh allegations, seem to have little or no interest in Biden's accusers. Well, the the Senate Majority Leader said uh, was asked on Monday about the allegations that in 1993, the senator um, and former vice president sexually assaulted a young staffer. Uh, something Biden has uh, not been asked about uh, in his many recent interviews. What is a fair way to, of, of uh, contemplating the allegation in a way that respects due process and the presumption of innocence, he was asked. Um, well, at the very least, it's pretty obvious that the same people who are outraged about allegations, unproven allegations against Justice Kavanaugh when he was in high school, seem to have little or no interest in what's uh, now been alleged against the former vice president and presumptive Democratic nominee. I think what most Americans would see, uh, would like to see is a, a um, symmetrical evaluation of these allegations rather than what we have seen, or at least so far. Biden has not been asked about this directly. He has not said a word about it. Uh, is that a strategy that you think could have worked for Brett Kavanaugh? No, I don't think that would have worked for Justice Kavanaugh, McConnell went on to say. And then Ben Shapiro, writing for uh, Creators uh, Syndicate, uh, points out that the media's double standard matters, and uh, perhaps we'll have an opportunity on a later date to talk about why it matters. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've run out of time. We'll take a quick break, and we'll wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Robert Hutchinson. The book is titled, What Really Happened? The Lincoln Assassination. Now, most of us think we know what happened. History tells us what happened. But apparently, there's more to the story than you and I might think there is. So we're going to talk with Robert Hutchinson, who is the author of the book, uh, published by Regnery History. So we're looking forward to uh, that conversation and find out what we don't know or what we think we know. Uh, Louis Giglio wrote an article for Christianity Today that reminds us all that when we are confused about the circumstances that surround all of us at once and restrict our movement and our ability to come near to one another, he quotes a scripture that may be familiar to some. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Well, when the Old Testament king Jehoshaphat received word that three armies had conspired together and were coming against him in one massive assault, he made a decisive and unconventional leadership move. Every leader around the globe is in a similar predicament. Faced with three-pronged advance of a global health pandemic, a world economy that's come to a screeching halt, and the personal crisis of anxiety and fear, what can we learn from the ancient leader that's applicable today? 
The odds weren't good for Jehoshaphat, and honestly, they aren't that great for a lot of families and businesses right now. Deep down, most leaders who have weathered brutal storms know that we'll get through it. We always do. We'll endure the carnage and emerge from the the depths to grow and prosper again. But that's going to take time, a very long time. Right now, we're in the valley of the shadow of death. So how do we lead through these dark hours? Let's look closely at the path Jehoshaphat chose. First, he called the people to seek God. The king prayed this transformational 12-word prayer. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't all have the liberty to corporately call our people to seek God, but every leader does have the opportunity to privately seek heaven, uh, heaven's help before leading others into the fray. And for those of us who are not officially leaders, we have that capacity to do the same in the sphere of influence that we want to encourage during this season. By nature, he writes, leaders are confident, skilled, and battle-tested. So often we roll out uh, out of bed and start leading the charge. It's easy to wake up, survey the landscape, and immediately focus on solving problems, creating opportunities, and marshalling the troops. Yet ultimately, any leader is only as durable as the humility that undergirds them, the humility that drives them to first seek help from the Lord. The hallmark of every leader is the ability to lead oneself. This means facing your limitations and leaning on your maker. We lead best by allowing God to lead us. Some object. You can't be humble in my line of work. Some object, rather. Uh, You can never show weakness or people will run right over you. Humility doesn't equate to weakness. Rather, it's where we find our strength. Or better yet, humility is the place we access God's supply. Hurricane force winds require exceptional leadership. Leadership that begins with this plea. God, I don't know what to do but my eyes are on you. It's not always um, prudent to lead a shareholder uh, call or staff meeting with this confession. People are looking for stability in their leaders and are counting on us to project confidence in worst case scenarios like we face today. But that doesn't hinder us from privately staying tethered to the reality that we are completely dependent on God. It doesn't hurt to say at every once in a while to our closest team leaders either. Well, this posture of humility is essential because it positions us for supernatural assistance. A word came to the king and the battle plan was set in motion. Jehoshaphat was told, you will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm and see the deliverance of the Lord will give you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow and the Lord will be with you. At 2 Chronicles, the 20th chapter, the 17th verse. God isn't asking you to over-spiritualize your situation Hey guys, we're just going to trust God with our enterprise and see what happens. Sit back and relax. Check out all the active verbs. Take up your position. Stand firm. Look. Go out. Face them. Yes, as you go, keep the oxygen of God's supernatural supply flowing in your every breath. In his spirit power, you can find the power to do what Jehoshaphat did next. He set out. He stood up. He spoke in verse 20. Uh, set out in faith that God is with you. Stand up in uh, on the rock of ages. Speak with authority because God will not fail. Then Jehoshaphat did one final thing before heading into the battle. He praised God. The king thanked God in advance for the victory God had promised. With God's help, Jehoshaphat and his army experienced God's deliverance in the battle. In the same way, God is going to deliver you. Dear God, I lift up my eyes to you. 
please disrupt my false sense of control and my overblown confidence in my own abilities. I humbly bow and ask for your supernatural strength, your wisdom and courage, so that I can endure these days and lead myself and others with faith for the future. My daily prayer will be, I do not know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Lead me and use me as an agent of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Not all of us have official titles of leaders, but if you're a parent, if you're overseeing the care of anyone for that matter, you have a sphere of influence, um, you can apply these same principles that we see in Jehoshaphat as he faced an indomitable uh, foe. Uh, There was no way on his own and in his own strength that he could win that battle without significant casualties, and yet God gave instruction. So if we all begin on our knees, availing ourselves uh, to the God of all mercy and grace, asking him how we can lead by example, lead quite literally or in whatever way he wants to use us during this season, I think we will all fare well because not only will we survive, but we will thrive in that we are extending the love of Christ to others and serving to the glory of God well. I would encourage you to do just that. We don't know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with uh, Robert Hutchinson. He's the author of What Really Happened, The Lincoln Assassination. The book is published by Regnery History. I hope you will join us for just that. We're also going to talk with Wycliffe. They have a series of resources for families to help you get through this pandemic as you are sheltering in place. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.